Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. On our ultimate Uber UFO roundtable on the Paracast this week, we thought it would be a nice idea to do a little myth-busting. We are joined by Paul Kimball, who returns again to our show after just a couple of weeks' absence. After his great appearance on Ghost Hunting with Holly Stevens, we have Nicholas Redfern. Nick, you haven't been here for a while, and we're happy to welcome you back. Well, thanks, guys. And we have a new voice, Greg Bishop. Hello. I'm just finishing breakfast. There, I'm done. Ready to go. Oh, Jesus. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you can see, you can see how spontaneous this show really is. There is no preparation, whatever. We do not have a staff of 30 or 40 people writing our scripts. I thought I'd at least make it sound spontaneous. Uh, I didn't have to say that I was eating. You, you see, if I was on uh, any other show, I wouldn't have mentioned the eating at all. You saved your alimentation stories for the Paracast. How lovely. <laughs> and, and what did you eat for breakfast, pray tell? I, it's embarrassing. I went and got Jack in the Box because we don't have any food left in the house. Oh, man, Jack in the Box. Oh, that's... <laughs> wow, that's usually what you eat at late at night when everything else is closed. On the yeah, way well, I woke up a half an hour ago and I realized the show was going to be on. There's no food in the house, so I just ran down the street. <laughs> so that's how. That's what's going on today so far. That's the first myth busted. People eat on the radio. We're going to bust some UFO myths before we go on, because I think there are so many things out there that people accept as possibly true. Maybe even the media says, okay, that has to be one of the UFO stories. And then you say, wait a minute, maybe it isn't. But then again, you know, with all these esteemed guests, we might get varying opinions. So I'll start with one. Now, hold on. Before you even say it, I'm going to prove I'm psychic because I know what you're going to say. Okay. It's just so obvious. So just go ahead. I know what you're going to say. It starts with an R and ends with an L. Go ahead. Oh, God. <laughs> See what I mean? See what I mean? Now, now we all know. Now, are you ready for this? Okay, so David is now trying to show no. you his psychic powers. No, you're going, I, to throw us, you're going to throw us off now. All right, go ahead. MJ-12. God. That was what, what I was planned, by the way. It's, it's just my hand clapping. Yeah, it's just clapping his hand. Okay. All right, so MJ-12, let's just go down the list here. Paul, believe it or disbelieve, if not, why not? never a question of belief or disbelief, Gene. It's a question of, of knowing in this case. Um, absolutely uh, false, fraudulent. There's uh, no provenance for the documents. There's uh, a boatload of holes in the documents themselves. And anything that has the names of Rick Doty or, no offense, Greg, I know he's um, a friend of yours, but William Moore circling around it, um, that alone should be enough to raise any one of a number of red flags. In your case, Paul, you have a close family member who disagrees with you, at least on some of those MJ-12 documents. We're talking about Uncle Stan Friedman. Yes, and the wonderful thing about a democracy or a family or either is that people like Stan have the, the absolute right to be completely 100% wrong consistently for almost 30 years. And on the case of MJ-12, Stan has been completely unreservedly 100% wrong for almost 25 years, I guess now, with the exception of those documents that um, 
he was uh, the Tim Cooper documents, for instance, that he correctly identified as fraudulent. So he got half the cake right, but the, the other half of the cake or pie or whatever you want to call it, he's been wrong from the get-go. Um, and most of the people that might have agreed with him early on have fallen away and now admit that the documents are, or say that the documents are fraudulent. And the majority of the UFO research community really early on saw that the documents were fraudulent. So um, I don't know how anybody could have read or listen to, if you were there, the paper delivered by Brad Sparks that was written by Sparks and Barry Greenwood last year at the MUFON Symposium. I mean, if you, if you ever needed a nail put in the MJ-12 story coffin, that was it. I, I think it was done years ago, but that, that was definitely the nail in the coffin. So if you haven't read it, folks, it's online. You know, Google it, look it up, Brad Sparks, MJ-12, MUFON, and, uh, and that should be it, case closed, as the Air Force would say. Okay, Greg Bishop, because of your acquaintanceship with William Moore, one of the people who brought to public light the original MJ-12 documents, what is your opinion? Well, it's funny. Everybody immediately jumps on Moore and he says he's a big liar. And um, he hasn't lied to me yet. Paul just said that anything associated with William Moore is, is automatically suspect. And you know what? I agree with him, but probably not for the same reason. Because Moore, as far as I can tell, has, has never lied to me. I haven't talked to him in about a year, but he's never lied to me about anything. I think he's been taken in, and he has also admitted he's been taken in. As for MJ-12, and Paul explained everything, and I agree with him on probably 90% of what he just said. Uh, Robert Hastings just wrote something called Operation Bird Droppings, where he tries to put further nails in the coffin, and he's wrong in a lot of spots, uh, and right in a lot of other spots. So, if you want to read that as well as Brad Sparks' stuff. As for MJ-12, I think there really was an MJ-12. However, I think it had nothing whatsoever to do with UFOs. But it was a real good, uh, thing to hang all of this on, because people would find hints of it here and there in the records but never really find out what it was so they could they could call it mj-12 and they had purview over ufo information etc cetera, etc cetera, and be reasonably certain that uh, nobody could ever get to the center of that uh, lollipop if that's, <laughs> that's how you want to look at it okay now look at the lollipop from nicholas redfern what do you think do you think it sucks <laughs> well, I mean, I, I believe the documents exist because we've all got copies. <laughs> but I agree with what Paul said. The only thing I would kind of add to that is what I kind of find interesting, and which I think Greg does as well, um, and maybe Paul to a lesser extent, is is the motivation behind the putting out of these documents. Now, you know, on the one hand, you could say some of them may have been put together in somebody's office, you know, using some early computer program or somebody just purchased an old 50-year-old typewriter and just thought, you know, I'm going to screw over the UFO community. I think, personally, I think it goes deeper than that. Now, you know, as someone who has an admitted interest in conspiracy theories, people might say, well, Nick would say that. But I do think, at times at least, that some of the documents, don't say all of them, because I think some probably are just straightforward hoaxes with people trying to jump on the bandwagon and make a name. But I do think at some point there has been attempts, or there have been attempts, I should say, to... I guess, kind of steer the UFO research community down different avenues and away from other issues. And I wouldn't fall down flat in a dead faint if it was found one day that the MJ-12 documents weren't just blatant hoaxes, but were something 
driving people down another avenue and away from something equally controversial. Get them tied course, up in look- as the most intelligent thing yet, and that's ex- I agree with him 100%. And, um, yeah, that, that, that is my bias, too. Why were they put out? What what are they trying to do? I agree with most of what Nick just said, too. Um, I don't know what the motivations were. It could have been profit. It could have been just a simple hoax. It could have been disinformation. It could have been a combination of all of those things, as Nick indicates, happening at different times by different people in different places. Um, I think the important, and Nick's right, he and Greg, I think, are probably more interested in the motivations than I am. You know, if you're looking at, at researching the UFO mystery, uh, I don't think you, you really should get dragged too far down the rabbit hole of disinformation, hoaxes, and that stuff. Identify them for what they are, and then go back and, and start looking at good cases. That's generally the way I look at it. But I think I think Nick's absolutely right. All of those things are probably in play with the MJ-12 documents. I, I would actually agree. Paul made a good point there, the fact that, you know, that if people just summarily dismiss the MJ-12 documents as hoaxes, or even if they accept them and then they turn out to be hoaxes anyway, that doesn't really have a bearing on on the UFO mystery, what lies at the heart of the UFO puzzle. And, you know, to an extent, Paul's right, that if we prove something's a hoax, let's move on. Because even if we prove, you know, they were just faked by somebody, some kid in his basement, or if they were faked by the Air Force, Although that's intriguing, it doesn't necessarily tell us what's at the heart of the genuine UFO reports. So, you know, Paul's, Paul's right in that respect that when we've identified hoaxes, we need to focus on cases that may well be real to, to answer the mystery of the UFO puzzle. When we get to the bottom of the MJ-12 puzzle, it may not actually have anything to do with UFOs. The one thing I wonder about here, though, is isn't it important to know who the offenders might be who perpetrated these hoaxes? Because then you could look at what they say if you already are not discounting what they say and say, look, these people have done this. Anything they present to us has to be completely suspect. So, again, was it Richard Doty? A former counterintelligence officer, was it William Moore, a former UFO researcher who at one point was considered very seriously? Let's go through the lineup here, of course. We know your opinion, Paul. Greg, what do you think? Well, I think that there's a lot of people that think that Moore did it himself, hoax the documents or cooperated with Doty. I don't happen to think so. I happen to think that, and I, I will admit this is a bias, I may not be looking at some evidence I should be. But what it appears to me, from what I've been told by Bill and and, uh, Doty and people on the outside of that nexus, was that somebody in the government at a certain time in the early 1980s wanted a lot of UFO researchers to start looking at this uh, MJ-12 stuff, MJ-12 documents. The the original, the Eisenhower briefing document, was actually mailed to Tim Good, the UFO researcher, before Morin Chandray. I believe, or maybe at about the same time, and the reason that, that the MJ-12 document, the original, was brought out in uh, 83 or 84 at the Na- National UFO Conference is because the people that released it, the government people on the inside said, you release it or Tim Good's going to release it before you. So obviously there's somebody in here that's really pushing that. And why were they pushing it? I think it's because it was a counterintelligence operation. And they were trying to pull people out. Um, who's interested in this subject matter? Who comes knocking at the door looking for this subject matter? And um, where, do, where do those people lead to? It was basically bait held out, I believe. 
and uh, that the fact that it excited the UFO community for so long is 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 what's the word is 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 just collateral to what the real uh, purpose of the documents were. At least that's what I think. Collateral. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to want to ask about that. Hey, neighbors, as we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We are talking to Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern, and Paul Kimball, an ultimate uber super UFO roundtable, doing some myth busting. So, okay, what's the collateral, Greg? Well, the collateral is, is partially what I mentioned. Collateral meaning you dangle something out there, people come running, the obvious people come running and look at it, the UFO community, and then there's other people that come look at it, people that hang around the UFO community but are not interested in UFOs. What they're interested in is military installations, national security secrets, and things like that. If they hang around it long enough and they're quiet long enough, they can get some of those answers. But they can also get burned by the you know U.S. counterintelligence people looking for them. That's what I think a great deal of the MJ-12 documents was for. That was that was the main reason for for hoaxing them. Whoever did it, and I believe it was somebody on the inside who had a fairly good but not perfect knowledge of UFO and certainly military history. Mm. What's your feeling about all this, David? From what I know about the sourcing of these documents. To me, it seems like one vast distraction. Obviously, I don't know Bill Moore. Uh, Greg has a friendship with him, which I think provides useful insight. But in the couple of conversations I've had with Doty and what I know about Rick Doty, I don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth at all. So uh, I look at this as a really serious distraction meant to basically confuse people. And it seems, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in the reasons for that reality. Not so much, again, the documents themselves, but why is someone trying to confuse people? I'm very interested in that. But like what Paul said, I think that there are really relevant, certainly much more contemporary cases to look into that have much stronger supporting evidence where you can determine provenance of the evidence. 
So I, I don't spend a lot of my time on this. I, I basically think this is a, a huge distraction, and I think paying a huge amount of attention to it is counterproductive. I would say one thing, Gene, sure. picking up on what David said, and I agree completely, and using your term collateral, I would add another word, which would be collateral damage. Mm -hmm. And I think the collateral damage here has been to Stan Friedman. And it, yeah. it pains me to say that, but for 25 years, he's been intimately associated with the MJ-12 fiasco. And I'm not sure whether he was the target particularly, but he's been the biggest casualty in terms of his credibility um, of the MJ-12 documents. And if there was a reason, if it was the military, if it was official disinformation, if it was designed to distract, then I think you have to look at what was going on at that time, that Stan was researching the Roswell case, whatever that was, and if you want to undermine the credibility of somebody who's maybe getting close to some truth about something, then the MJ-12 documents, I think, have, have succeeded in, in that respect. So to me, that's the collateral damage that comes out of it. It would also be, unfortunately, for this, Paul, if today Stan Friedman came on and said, you know, folks, I was fooled by MJ-12, that even though he might be sincere, that's assuming something that is not in evidence. We're assuming facts not in evidence, and you as an attorney, Paul, would understand this concept. If that were to happen, it would really seriously hurt his credibility with regard to just about anything else he's talked about, don't you think? Um, no, actually, I had this conversation with Stan, okay. and I, I know Brad Sparks has and others have too over the years, where we've tried to convince him you know, to make him see the MJ-12 light. I know Brad and I have had conversations where we both think somewhere deep in his heart, in the back of his mind, Stan knows that, even if it's subconscious, that these things, that, that there's... Let's just say there's real problems with the documents. But I think he's so far in that what you say is true in his mind, that, he, that somewhere he'd be afraid that admitting that he'd been fooled would undermine his entire career. Um, I take the opposite tack, and I think so does Brad. I think that admission, that acknowledgement, would not save his career, but would resurrect his credibility. Um, and, and the ability to admit that you were wrong, even over a very long period of time, and then to ask the questions as to why you were wrong and how maybe people could learn from the mistakes you made, but also maybe why those documents were created in the first place. Um, I, I wish he'd do that. I wish he would see the light. It's just ne it's never going to happen. And Brad and I have both agreed that that's never going to happen, so, so there's no point really in speculating on it. But I don't think it would hurt his reputation. I think people can benefit from, no matter how long it's been, and coming forward and saying, you know what, I was fooled, and, and here's what I've learned from that, and here's what you can all learn from my mistakes. Never okay. afraid to admit you're wrong. Well, okay, what can we learn then from MJ-12? Let's look at that now. From that kind of hoax, are there other hoaxes out there of a comparable nature? Now, more recently we've talked about things like Project Serpo, which seems to be a low-grade hoax. Because I don't think anybody who spends three minutes would believe it. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. <laughs> or yes, you're not wrong. I totally agree. I, I can't believe people were taken in by that for even a short time. Then when you look into it, a lot of the same people, at least a couple, were involved that were involved way back during the MJ-12 and Paul Benowitz days. Are you referring to a certain, uh, by the way, in terms of Doty, I have to tell you that David and I have talked to him on the phone, and to me at least he denies any involvement in Serpa, which of course if he's a disinformation artist, that means nothing. David, I think, said earlier that 
he, you can't trust anything he says, but that's disregarding the nature of disinformation. And the nature of disinformation is that um, there is some truth in the middle of all the of all the junk. Um, I talked to him for the book, uh, for Project Beta, and yeah, probably most of the stuff he told me was either not true or not checkable. But a few things that were checkable did check out. Um, with basically with other people that were not in the military and not in the intelligence community. And why is this important? I think it's important because I, for one, will listen to people that other people have thrown out and said they lie because they might give you a clue. I don't know about Doty, but some other people might give you a little clue as to where to look. They like doing this. It's a game they play. So, well, In a case like someone like Doty, is he doing this under the control of the government, or is he just a private hoaxer? I think of private hoaxers, we look at people like, well, frankly, Jim Mosley and Gray Barker in their heyday, and the late Gray Barker. Back in the 50s and 60s, they were perpetrating hoaxes. But as far as we can tell, they were just private individuals trying to goof on the UFO field. Is Doty trying to goof on the UFO field, or does he have a higher motive? I think in, when he was working for the OSI in the 80s and um, part of the 90s, I think, uh, yes, he was working for the OSI. For Serpo, I think he was working with somebody or for somebody, if you accept that he was involved. Um, I also think that he likes messing with people. That, that's just his personality. So there, there's a lot of layers there. And then, then you'll talk to somebody else, like John Alexander or Hal Putoff or somebody like that, members of that group. And they have varying degrees of what they want to tell you, what they want to admit, what they want to say is true, and what they want to find out from you, possibly. It's a big game. It's a, it's a big, complicated, sometimes um, confusing, and maybe to some people frightening game. But that kind of stuff interests me. The, the fact that um, it's not solving the UFO riddle doesn't bother me in the least because I'm interested in that part of the history and that part of the dynamic of the UFO community. I'm also interested in an ultimate, you know, quote-unquote answer as well. It's just maybe I spread myself a little thin, but um, I think Nick is probably uh, uh, very much the same way. Yeah, I think the one thing I would kind of add to that, which a lot of people don't necessarily think about, is that regardless of whether we think person A, B, C, D, E, F are disinformers, at the end of the day, they may not necessarily be wittingly aware that what they're spreading is disinformation. They may yeah, uh, right. believe it. And I think that's an important thing, is that I think all of us in the UFO field, over a period of time, whether a short time or long time, we become good judges of character because, you know, you can tell when someone's spinning you a line or not. But if they earnestly believe what they're saying, that makes it a lot more difficult to determine if they're lying or not. And I think there is sometimes this belief, whether unconscious or whether unconsciously or consciously, that people are spreading disinformation and knowingly spreading it. You know, they may well have been exposed to documentation which they believe to be real and then they're told to spread a different story. It may be the case that none of those stories are real. But if you've got somebody who really believes what they're saying, that comes over across very well. So it's possible that some people who we perceive as disinformers, whoever they might be, are themselves disinformed to further hide the secret. Well, there's also a possibility here that actually somebody who people have different opinions about, Bill Burns suggested several times on our show that one way to keep the secret is not necessarily to keep everything secret, but just pollute the waters with so much garbage that it's difficult to tell 
when you baffle them with BS where the truth and where the falsity lies. Well, that's that's um, that's one of the few things I would agree with Bill Burns on. And his, <laughs> history is replete with examples outside of the UFO field of of that mechanism and intelligence. I mean, all you have to do is look at the D-Day landings, where the Allies were um, were planning information all over Europe as to where they might land. I mean, the Germans knew they were coming. Everybody knew that the Allies were going to land somewhere. But the idea was to confuse them and convince them that they were going to land somewhere other than where they did. And it worked like a charm. But that's because they put all these other leads out there, many of which were false, and the, the Nazi intelligence apparatus bought into it. Um, so, you know, that's just one example I'm familiar with. You can go throughout the, the human history and find examples of how you pollute the waters to muddy up the truth. And I think there's probably an element of that going on with this, with what undoubtedly exists in the UFO field, disinformation. The, the big question, I guess, is why are they doing it? Is it to cover up the alien presence on the planet Earth? Is it to cover up top secret to use the UFO community um, as a way of sort of distracting attention from um, sort of American Air Force experiments, top secret projects? You know, what is, what is the reason they're doing it? And if you're interested in that, Greg's quite right. I, I don't think that's particularly related to the UFO question, but it's an interesting area of subject nonetheless, and I can certainly understand why Greg would be interested in it. Um, I just don't think it brings you closer to solving the UFO question. Yes to what Paul said, and, and I've said a few times, many times, and I think Nick has said this too, I think is what, what's being covered up is ignorance and fear. I don't think the government knows what's going on. I don't think they know how to, to deal with the UFO subject, and they want to find out as much about it as they can. They're Actually, they probably have a lot more information than we do, but no more idea of where where the thing is coming from, what it is, and or most importantly, how to control it. But they certainly know how to control the information um, that that they have and about how to cover up their ignorance. That That's what this all of this looks like to me. That's what it has a signature of. I would actually chime in and say that Greg is exactly on the money with that statement. It's pretty clear to, to me, based on what I've, I've looked at with this, that the government has a very strong interest in maintaining an appearance of control, that they can handle whatever this is. And I think if we were able to really peer in to whatever they really do know, we would understand that what they know is very little and that they can't come out and admit that because basically that would undermine any real power that uh, not any real power that they have but certainly the perception that they can maintain a sense of security uh, you know and and I, I think that with regards to this topic specifically I have lots of reasons for saying this uh, but it, it would appear to me that uh, they don't know what's going on. I think what you said is, is exactly correct, Greg. They don't know what's going on. Uh, they certainly can't control it. If, this is, if there's one thing that's clear, our best aircraft are completely outmaneuvered by whatever these things are, and there's no way we could stop these things. And it's pretty clear that whatever these things are, uh, you know, ultimately are they here to invade and conquer us? Well, I suspect that if they wanted to do that, in an overt fashion, that would have happened a long time ago. I don't think that's what's going on at all. But ultimately, what you said is exactly correct, Greg. They might have a lot more information and data, maybe even artifacts, and we can even imagine, but do they know what any of that means? Uh, no. The whole idea of reverse engineering of uh, recovered technology, like we've talked about in the show, Gene, 
anybody who understands technology, the development of technology, the evolution of technological innovation and development, uh, understands that there's there's no way that we've been able to reverse engineer a damn thing, regardless of what Stephen Bassett claims. <laughs> Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. talking to Paul Kimball, Nicholas Redfern, and Greg Bishop, and this is the ultimate uber super UFO roundtable. I'm trying to add as many adjectives as possible there. We're doing some myth busting for this first part of it, and let's look over another myth, or not a myth. We're going to get to one that David suggested, but I want to preface this by an article that Frank Warren published at UFO Chronicle site, where a person involved in crash dummies is quoted as saying that the Air Force misrepresented what he said and that privately he and his wife do believe that the Roswell crash was real. Let's start with down or up the list. Greg Bishop, what do you think about Roswell? Uh, I don't know what to think about Roswell. My, my, my uh, holding place for that in my mind or my belief system or whatever you want to call it is that something crashed and something that was very important to the authorities at the time, and it was very important to them to muddy the waters as much as possible as to what that might be. Um, if anybody have read Nick's book, um, Body Snatchers in the Desert, I think there's a, a lot of clues there. And Nick even admits, he said, I don't believe this, I just think it's a very interesting lead. A lot of the uh, witnesses either change their stories or etc after you know after the factor elaborated upon them i actually have tapes of a couple of the witnesses that were interviewed by bill moore back at the time from the late 70s i have to transcribe those and let people look at them to see what the original witnesses said before anybody had talked to them i think that's an important piece of information and i'd like to get that out there what troubles me about roswell is the fact that we heard rumors say around the early 1950s of a UFO crash, but it seemed to relate to the Aztec crash, such as in that book Behind the Flying Saucers by Frank Scully that came out in 1950. But we really didn't hear much of anything about Roswell until the late 70s. 
And that worries me that it remained a secret all these years. If there were so many witnesses, so much information, how did that happen? Because we're not talking about military people here. We're talking about civilians. Nicholas, you were referred to by Greg there. Maybe you can expand on your viewpoint. Well, yeah, uh, Greg just mentioned I, I wrote a book on Roswell called Body Snatchers in the Desert, which basically, in some ways, actually, I guess, offered vindication for the idea that something strange, out of the ordinary, and very, very secretive occurred, and that was the subject of a conspiracy and a cover-up. Now, the, the only difference is that whereas, you know, those who believe aliens crashed at Roswell disagree with, with the data presented in my book that what actually happened was a down-to-earth military experiment, but the end result was the same, i.e. a cover-up, obfuscation, and various cover stories put out to hide the truth. Now, as Greg said, I don't, it's not that I, you know, I, I try not to use words and terms like believe or disbelieve. All I can kind of do, and which I tried to do in the book, was present the data that was given to me in support of the notion that this was a classified military experiment using high-altitude balloons to test the human body against high-altitude exposure, cosmic ray exposure, that sort of thing. Now, the, the biggest problem with Roswell, and you know, people might say I'm going over old ground because I've mentioned this before, is the fact that it's so long ago, we have no paperwork, nearly everybody's dead, and the government says it was nothing other than a mogul balloon and crash test dummies. And some people see it as defeatist to say we're at a, almost like a threshold where we can go no further with the case. But the fact is we really are. And I've kind of likened Roswell to the story of Jack the Ripper, that it's a great old mystery with lots of theories to it as to who the murderer was or whatever. And lots of books have been written, but everybody's gone and we're at a stalemate. And unfortunately, that is where Roswell's at. It doesn't matter, ironically, if the UFO believers are correct, or if I'm correct, or the government's correct, because it's so long ago, none of us can definitively prove it with 100% certainty. And I think, no matter how much we debate it, unless there really is a secret file sat somewhere, and then one day the government releases it, we're never going to know the truth. And for many people, that's frustrating. I'd like to know the truth. But if I'm realistic, do I think we stand a chance in hell unless the government actually comes clean? No, we don't. And that's why we're going around in circles and why, precisely why Greg opened his comment by saying he doesn't know what to think of Roswell because there is no way to think of it definitively. You know, a lot of it does come down to which witnesses you believe, which whistleblowers you believe, which testimony you accept, um, and which government explanation you accept. The first one, that it was a flying disc, that it was a weather balloon, or that it was a mogul balloon, or God knows what. You know, it's that's the problem. Nobody wants to hear that Roswell isn't resolvable definitively, <laughs> but I actually think it isn't resolvable definitively. You know, in connection with some of the things that we've said, speaking of possible government experiments, there was a story that came out in the Los Angeles Times not too long ago where several elderly people who worked at Area 51 report the fact that they were working there on secret weapons. They don't know anything about UFOs, but they know about secret weapons. And that brings us to a larger issue here. 
what percentage, particularly of the early UFO sightings, were actually secret weapons. And maybe, as in Roswell, the illusion was created that it might be a spaceship to throw us off the track because we're talking about the Cold War times when we didn't want the Russians to know what we were doing. What do you think, guys? Paul, what do you think? I think there's a there's a very good chance that an awful lot of the cases that we would look at or Blue Book looked at, that percentage that Stan always talks about that was unexplainable by Blue Book, would be perfectly explainable if we could go back now, 50 years later, 40 years later, or even 60 years later, with what we know now about what was flying around in the skies that we had. And we could say, okay, that was probably that, that was probably that, that was probably that. So, yes, I think you could whittle down the percentage of unexplained cases um, by by a great deal. I, I still think, I, in fact, I have no doubt that that would still leave a much smaller but still significant percentage of cases, many of which are the really weird high strangeness ones that the nuts and bolts UFO guys with the flying saucers don't like to talk about so much. But which, frankly, the more the the longer I go on, the more I find interesting. Those ones, I think, would still remain, and they would still be unexplainable. Um, and and then you get cases like my film Best Evidence, the Kelly Johnson case, which very few people know about, um, unless you've seen my film or maybe talked to Brad Sparks. Uh, but it was a case that came out of the Blue Book files that just languished there for decades until Brad discovered it. And what you have is you have, and this is the kind of case, instead of talking about Roswell, and I, I have tons of opinions about Roswell, and I'm not going to offer any of them, because I, I agree with Nick. I think it's unresolvable, and I think we should move on. And if you want to talk about old cases, um, I think there are many better old cases that you could talk about, and the Johnson case is one of them. America's leading aircraft designer, aeronautical engineer, Kelly Johnson and his wife, seeing something from their back patio in um, Santa Barbara, California, Agora, actually, at the same time as out over the ocean, a crew of his top test pilots and flight engineers see the exact same thing, totally independent of each other, and they show up at work the next day and go, hey, guess what I saw yesterday? Really? We saw the same thing. Okay, we're designing the most advanced aircraft we have on the planet. We're the guys doing it. And we have no idea what that was, and nothing we know of or could build could move the way that what we saw moved. And then the Air Force offers an explanation that it's a lenticular cloud. That was their official explanation. <laughs> now, if you sit, I do this when I speak um, in front of, when I go to conferences or whatever, like the RetroCon thing that the three of us were all at last year, Greg and Nick and I, I, I just tell that story and I say, look, if anybody ever asks you whether there's something serious to the UFO phenomenon, whatever it is, tell them this story. Don't tell them Roswell um, or, God forbid, Aztec or MJ-12 or anything like that. Tell them this story and then ask them to explain it. And then also ask them why the United States Air Force would offer as an explanation with the quality of witnesses they were dealing with and the nature of the sighting that it was a lenticular cloud. As we said in the film, if, the, if, if Kelly Johnson and his top people really mistook a structured air vehicle for a lenticular cloud, any sensible Air Force on the planet would have fired all those people right away and hired somebody else to design planes, but they didn't. They kept working for them for decades. So to me, Roswell doesn't matter. Um, it's a mess. It's confused. I have my own opinions on what I think it is. But there are many better cases if you want to look at the history of the UFO phenomenon. I think... The big problem with the UFO thing is, and we, I, I guess we can talk about this, is why are we talking about all of these old cases? 
there's O'Hare, there's Stephenville. And we should be investigating and continuing to investigate those cases because I don't think we have a definitive answer for O'Hare or Stephenville or any of these new cases. But it's good that we're looking at them and investigating them, but that's where all of the effort should be going because unless you can go back into the old Blue Book files or something and find a real gem like the Kelly Johnson case, but I think the time, as Nick pointed out, those people are dying or are dead, so the time for that is, is probably passing. But the, where ufology has fallen down in the last 20 or 30 years is the investigation of current ongoing cases, the way that NICAP and APRO used to do, at least to an extent. Hmm. And that's, that's where the focus should be. And that's, um, with some notable exceptions, and NARCAP's investigation into the O'Hare case, which, David, you participated in, hmm. is a notable exception. That's sort of one case where people actually came together and really started to turn their attention to it. But that doesn't happen very often anymore. Part of that, I think, is media-driven. The media wants to talk about Roswell as if the entire possibility or evidence of UFO reality rests on a single case. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. What doesn't rest on a single case is the fact that we have Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern, and Paul Kimball joining us on this roundtable. And maybe we should go round robin here. Go back to Greg. Greg, what do you think if today someone said, okay, you think UFOs are real? Give me one case or two cases that will demonstrate, recent cases, that UFOs are something other than secret weapons or conventional things. What would you tell them? One case? I don't know about recent ones. It keeps going on and on and on and on. But the best cases, I think, are, like Paul said, some with observers, observers who are trained to tell you, well, it's nothing that we know about. And to, get, and to get back to the sort of back to what you asked before about how many of them are military craft, I think a great deal of them are. Um, I happen to have a, a uh, strong suspicion that the uh, kind of aircraft that we expect to see um, with wings and all that are at this point um, m maybe obsolete. Um, and there, there is some kind of anti-gravity, if you want to call that, or something that's very maneuverable that is really important to keep secret. Now, that, that's pure speculation on my part, and of course, there's nothing really to back it up except for possibly a, a document um, about anti-gravity that was published in the 1950s and was available in the uh, Wright-Patterson Air, Air Force Base Library. Um, and I know I've talked to a couple people who have seen that document in the library. But, um, yeah, the best cases are the kind where 
You've got trained observers who know what they're looking at or know what they should be looking for, astronomers maybe, at least not you know, docu- do- doctrinaire astronomers, pilots, military people that see things in the air all the time and, and know how to identify things. And if you could get that you know, on a program, some kind of popular program, um, to let people know that there are some unexplained that need to be looked at and explained, I think that would further the, um, I guess, the cause or whatever, make it more important to more people that we know what we're interacting with, which is looks like it's possibly non-human, not not caused by us, but interacts with us from time to time. And um, yeah, one of the best, just <laughs> Paul's here, but one of the best um, presentations of that is is uh, best evidence. Hmm. Nicholas, what's your viewpoint? Well, you know, I think Paul brought up this point that there's been a lot of research done historically, uh, maybe not a great deal of research, or at least there's not as much research on more modern-day cases. Now, the the problem with modern-day cases, and you know, this kind of dovetails with what Greg's saying, is that the further our own technology advances, the harder and harder it's going to come, become to differentiate between what, what might be a true UFO, whatever that might be and what could well be classified military technology. And I think that situation is only going to increase, you know, with things like military drones and the police in England, for example, now flying, you know, small three to four foot drone um, vehicles to basically spy on crowds, rioters, that sort of thing. Um, So we have that issue. So I think we're definitely getting a lot more UFO reports coming through in the last couple of years, but to what extent they shed light or potentially could shed light on quote real UFOs or what to what extent they might shed light on real military activity I think that's an important question and you know I think modern day cases very very different from say the 50s 40s 60s Um, for example you know when was the last time you heard of a vehicle interference case or aliens taking soil samples from the ground or classic flying saucer reports. You know, you just don't get the type of reports that we got back in the late 40s and the 50s. They're gone and they've been replaced by unusual lights in the sky, flying triangles and things, which may actually have nothing to do with the original reports. So the best reports I've been personally investigated are unfortunately older reports, particularly British Royal Air Force reports, which have been declassified Um, by the Ministry of Defence, where, for example, you have military personnel talking about sightings of disc-shaped craft over um, airfields, one famous one at a place called RAF Topcliffe in Yorkshire, England, in 1952, where this object was seen by a whole bunch of people at the airfield, then it shot off at high speed after hovering over the airfield. We just don't seem to get really good cases today of the type that appeared back in the 50s and 60s and that's why I wonder if we're actually dealing with two different phenomena that investigating today's reports isn't going to shed much light on the older reports. That may be the people or creatures or whatever responsible for the UFOs then are not the ones responsible for the UFOs today or because of our cultural changes we're perceiving them differently. I think it could be a bit of both. I think it could be that there was a genuine UFO phenomenon in the 40s, 50s and 60s and they went home and today we're left with military vehicles and a government that may not know the truth behind who these visitors were so they 
pump out UFO stories that to some extent make it look like they're still here. You know, I just don't know. But I think there's a clear delineation between the older years and the new years in terms of the nature of the phenomenon. And part of it could be, you know, which is one of Greg's big interests, the idea that the phenomenon changes to suit the people of the times and perhaps it's trying to teach us something in ways that are culturally acceptable to the people of that era. Well, you know what, Greg? You're on. Explain that. Well, it's um, it started, of course, with um, people like, uh, and I always bring them up, uh, John Keel and Jacques Vallée in the 1960s going back and doing what we were just talking about, looking at old cases, looking at data, um, arranging the data in different ways. And as as Relay um, says, the data does not fit the the hypothesis. So the hypothesis being that there are aliens coming from other planets visiting the, visiting us in structured craft. That's um, uh, if you look at all the UFO information, there's there's compelling reasons to believe that. But that's that's because of our belief system at the time. I mean, it, you can say, well, we know more now than people did in the Middle Ages or. Or, or before when there's uh, reports of, of uh, strange craft in the sky, such as the Nuremberg 16, I think Paul knows the date for that. 1561. Yes. Um, and because of the, the ideas of that time, they, they, they ascribe certain um, motivations or whatever to what they were seeing in the sky and described it as a flaming log or something like that. Um, and maybe that's exactly what they saw, because they're conditioned in a way to see those things. What, the example I give is that when something un, unidentified is entering your field of uh, uh, awareness, your brain subconsciously and consciously is fiercely trying to stuff it in a box where it belongs. And we've been provided one in, in, for the last 50 years by, by our culture and science fiction and popular culture. Um, and I think that if there is any message coming from some non-human source, um, I'm still up in the air about whether there is any kind of message. It's going to be uh, it's going to be garbled by our conscious mind. The, the uh, remote viewers have the same thing. It's called analytical overlay. Um, your your brain is going to put it where it wants it to be, rather than where it is or what it is. And um, I don't think we have any clue <laughs> now. We have it in the past, and, and for, for the foreseeable future, where that's coming from, what it is, and what it might be trying to tell us. I think I think 90% of it, or more, 99% of it, is coming from our expectations, and our our predisposition, and our cultural conditioning, etc. And a lot of it could be, you know, uh, a lot of it subconscious, and some of it could be, in a way, a collective unconscious kind of idea. Goes back to Dr. Carl Jung in his book in the 1950s. What about ancillary events such as crop circles? Paul, what's your feeling? Well, you could probably read uh, read on the wonderful Paracast discussion forums because I commented briefly on the show you guys had with the Sherwoods. Um, I think I agree with Nick here, and Nick, you can correct me if I'm misrepresenting your position. I don't think I am, but you're of the opinion that um, the vast majority, if not all, of crop circles are man-made, but for some of them, some few of them, there might be a paranormal element working in concert with that. Is that your opinion? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with that. In fact, I do agree with that. So that would be my, my short answer. And Nick is more familiar with the, the crop circle phenomenon um, than I am. 
uh, I think he'd probably be better suited to address that in, in greater detail. I would just say um, on the um, on the previous question of old cases versus new cases, um, you know, if there's anyone listening out there, give me a million and a half dollars, I'll raise the other million. Nick and Greg and I will spend two years looking for the truth about the UFO phenomenon. I don't know if we'd find it, but you, there is, I, I joke a bit, but if you really have that money, call me. But one of the things that's missing, I mean, these things, it, it, it's not cheap. You have to go and to the places where reports are being um, are coming from. You have to be monitoring this stuff, and you have to go interview witnesses, gather data, and all that sort of stuff. So I understand a bit why maybe um, investigations aren't being done as much as they were in the days of NICAP, when as, as impoverished as NICAP might have been, they did have some infrastructure. And MUFON is just not an organization that is capable either intellectually or in terms of its belief system in fulfilling that role. What you need are people of an independent mindset that are not wedded to any one theory, and you need those folks to go out and look into it. And, uh, and yeah, that would require some money. But I think it might be a more profitable expense than putting money into, here's one thing I do agree with Stan on, um, SETI. If I had the choice, if I had $10 million lying around and my choice was to put it into the SETI program or to put it into the investigation of the UFO phenomenon here, I think we, we have the potential to, lo- to learn an awful lot more, if nothing else, about ourselves but how other human, non-human intelligences may be interacting with us, whatever they are, from studying the UFO phenomenon as opposed to pointing radio telescopes out in space. So mm-hmm. in that respect, I do agree with Stan, even though Stan would say, well, it's, it's aliens, but they're just looking for them in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I would say, well, they're, they're looking for whatever it is in the wrong way. Um, let's look for it in a different way and focus on the UFO phenomenon. Okay, Nick, since you've been mentioned, referred to there, paranormal aspect of crop circles in what fashion? Well, you know, I think one of the first important things to stress is that, you know, I'm originally from England, and when the crop circle phenomenon began to kick off into the mid to late 80s, you know, I began to take an interest in it. And one of the things that always kind of annoys me is that if anyone... A human, a human being is found to have made a crop circle. They're always described as crop circle hoaxes. Now, hoaxes, using that word, that term, implies malicious intent to deceive people. Now, a lot of the people who make these claims fail to do one important thing, and that is to get to personally know the people within the crop circle arena who make these formations. There's no doubt, you know, I have friends who go out and make these, and they're incredibly skilled at doing it. I have a good friend, Matthew Williams, who lives in Wiltshire, England, where most of the formations are found every year. And Matthew is the only person ever to be arrested, convicted, charged and convicted for making a crop circle. The actual charge was something like causing damage to a, a field. But nevertheless, you know, the, the, for want of a better term, he was arrested and charged for making a crop circle. Now, when you speak to the people who make these things, you find there are several different groups. There are those who feel that what they're doing is actually a form of artwork, but instead of using canvas, paints, pencils, etc., they're using living crop, and they enjoy the fact that they can create a fantastic formation and for it to provoke intense feelings and reactions in people that see it, in the same way that pictures in the paintings in an art gallery might in other people. There are other people who who just enjoy doing it, you know, the, the thrill of going out. Now, People like Matthew are a little bit different, and granted, the, what I'm going to talk about now 
depends upon your acceptance of these particular scenarios and ideas. But Matthew has found that in the formations he's made, he has experienced strange phenomena. For example, seeing small glowing balls of light hovering over the formations, literally as he's making them, uh, missing time, and just general, I guess, forty and weirdness. Now, well, are you implying also that maybe he is being directed to yes. do this in a certain way? Okay. Yeah, Matthew thinks that there's an element of crop circle making where the unconscious mind of the crop circle maker is being manipulated by some higher intelligence. What Matthew doesn't believe is that nuts and bolts spacecraft are firing down in simple terms a beam of whatever and carving, you know, flattening the crop and making formations. He thinks that human beings could possibly be being used as vessels. Almost, I guess, like a modern day contact T scenario, almost, you know, in terms of of channeling and things like this. I mean, Matthew, for example, has come across a number of cases where he's got this thought in his head to make a particular formation, only to find that on the same night someone else has made an extremely similar formation. So he's of the opinion that all of the so-called pictograms, the highly intricate designs, are made by people. But he feels that there's a paranormal influence at work. Now, what puzzles Matthew and puzzles me is why that should inflame so many crop circle researchers, because it still implies a mystery. What it doesn't imply, though, is nuts and bolts aliens in metal craft, etc., being involved, or at least directly involved in the way that we understand it. So, you know, that, that's why I think the human component is the most important one. Whether that component is working alone or something's guiding it is a moot point and largely dependent on whether you accept those ideas. But a lot, the important thing is a lot of the crop circle makers do accept that and have had these experiences. They're not, in simple terms, as so many of the true believers put it, hoaxers. That's actually the last thing they are. Ooh. David, you want to do a quick comment before we break for the hour? Well, I kind of wanted to do a, a more complete comment, but as far as contemporary cases, in a recent episode, we're going to be talking with um, Peter Robbins. I think the Rendlesham case is, is a really fascinating one, where most of the players, if not all of the players in that case, are still alive. A lot of them are willing to talk. I think that's an extremely compelling case for a number of reasons, and I think it sort of gets lost in the shuffle very often. In terms of contemporary cases, I would certainly be interested in looking at that, the other really important point that I think needs to be made is, based on my own experiences, I can very confidently say that there are probably a number of cases that we do not know about, that are not reported in the media, that are significant. And uh, our audience has heard me talk about part of a mass sighting that, that I was involved with in 1974 in Caracas, Venezuela, that is in none of the UFO lore. It, it basically does not exist as far as UFO researchers are concerned, yet it was an extremely, for me, important situation in that I was there. I'm not going on secondhand information. I was there, and what I saw with hundreds, if not thousands of other people, I can say in an absolute way, was not ours. I, I can't tell you where it came from, can't tell you what it was doing here, but I can absolutely, positively say, 100% confidence, it was not current human technology. What I'll say about, about this whole meta-topic is that, again, to make this important point, there is uh, a lot of stuff that we do not know about that are probably 
extremely current cases that are not reported in our media, that are not part of the UFO history as it currently stands. And I would go looking down some of those those uh, avenues. I would take a crew down to South America, and I'd spend six months between Brazil, Argentina, and Venezuela gathering a tremendous amount of evidence because there are ongoing waves right now in Argentina that no one is really seriously looking into. That's where I would put the money. The case of the missing UFO sightings, I guess we could cover that in more detail in part two. We're talking the Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern, and Paul Kimball. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We have Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern, and Paul Kimball. We're doing a special UFO roundtable. And, David, maybe you want to expand upon this. You have had UFO encounters. You talked of one in New Jersey, one in Venezuela. Not reported in the media. And, obviously, what we're getting involved here is the fact that maybe because of the media attitude, maybe because of the focus on these alleged classic cases, real or otherwise, maybe it is that... We're losing so much evidence because people are afraid, reluctant, whatever, to report their experiences. What's your reaction to that, David? Well, I think at this point we should be media savvy. We should be cognizant of the limitations of the media as a current stands. We should learn about the history of our current mass media and realize that there's just about zero possibility that the media is going to treat the topic of UFOs in a serious way. So to look at the mainstream media for any kind of insights, what can I say? You have UFO hunters, which is essentially useless, really useless. It's about entertainment. The mainstream media, uh, really, its primary mission is to entertain and distract. Neither of those objectives serve us in any way in terms of real paranormal research of any type. So I think that we have to take away any sort of prioritization given to the mainstream media uh, in trying to help further the awareness and understanding of any of these phenomena. Well, let's get that out of the way. And I think based on what we've seen politically in the last, fill in the blank, 12 years, 15 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, as far as the mainstream media, its ability to deal with useful truth has gone down so tremendously. It's just basically one big propaganda machine. So in terms of Academic research, it's effectively useless, I think. Well, you know what? Back in the 70s, I was working at a mainstream radio station as a news director, 
And I went out and covered UFO cases and with their kind indulgence. Now, in those days, we had local newspapers with local staffs covering local events. Even the larger regional newspapers had large local staffs covering these events. I remember we'd have meetings with the various members of the press who were members of a press association in Pennsylvania. You had the Philadelphia Daily News, Philadelphia Inquirer. You had all the local radio stations, the local newspapers. And we'd sit around, hang out, talk shop. Today, those people don't exist because it's either a shortened staff, just national stories, newspapers going out of business, you don't have that media anymore. And as you say, it's all concentrated on these large corporations that own everything in sight. And basically, the events of the day are what they want us to believe. We don't have the local alternatives. We don't have the local radio stations either. You know, nowadays, you have Clear Channel that owns 47 stations in a big market. You don't have that local independent media to cover things. So how do we go about getting all these cases that are out there. The, the answer to that is that you have the internet. The problem there is you have a double-edged sword. You have a leveling of the playing field in terms of access to communications and ability to broadcast. The internet is the ultimate broadcast uh, system. That, that's pretty clear. But the problem is that the level of signal-to-noise is real problematic. I mean, if people are going to UFO digest to get their information about UFOs, that is the equivalent of a cesspool. It's utterly useless as far as any kind of source of useful information. There is no editorial vetting going on whatsoever. It's just one big crap fest. And with a lot of the, the Internet, I mean, yeah, go to, I'm not even going to start to name some of the sites, but you know, go to the, the, the world's biggest conspiracy site in English, and it is utterly unreadable. It's just terrible. So you have to be smart about how you go about and find things. You actually have to try to seek out people who you feel are being relatively objective. You have to try to find people who, I think, and this is, this is my own, one of my own personal qualifiers about this, is that I'm really interested in people in this field who are looking into it who have had experiences. We've had people on the show. I'm not going to name any names, Paula Harris who is someone who claims to be a researcher, who has never had an actual UFO sighting, and who's promoting crap for her own uh, visibility per sake, for her own attention-seeking uh, motivation. So people who really come across as offering, for example, absolute answers about things, people who identify with and bring up cases that we know are nonsense and try to use them to support any kind of an argument. Look, at, at this point, anybody in the field of UFO journalism who tries to engage you in a conversation about how interesting the Billy Meyer nonsense is, just sweep them out of the way. I mean, basically, you have to, at a certain point, you have to make some decisions about prioritization of sources and credibility. And you have to make some judgment calls there. And, of course, the problem is that in our world today, everybody is a special flower. And everybody has an opinion. And you're supposed to somehow give everybody's opinion the same weight, which I think is just utter nonsense. Where is the idea of critical thinking? Where is the idea of the informed opinion? 
Because let's face it, everybody's got an opinion. Certain opinions have something to back them up. Other opinions have nothing. I think we have to be more critical and more judgmental in our approach to this. And it's not just the UFO topic. My God, you could take this and map this into any discussion about anything. End of rant. Yeah, yes. You also have to respect, uh, I would add, David, professional expertise. So you have a professional expertise when it comes to image analysis, for instance. I have, through dint of sometimes hard work or whatever, either a professional expertise in, in the field of filmmaking or I hire good people who can cover up my own inadequacies, but I'm smart enough to know what I can't do, and I hire people who can, and so, and so forth and so on. Right. And you're right. Not everybody is equal. You should have equality of opportunity, but not equality of situation. Some people are just smarter than other people. Some people are capable of more critical thinking than other people. Some people are more objective. And I think the problem comes, you mentioned in particular Paula Harris and people like that. You're going to see a couple of weeks ago um, at the X conference an awful lot of these people who, uh, like Paula Harris or, or Stephen Greer or Alfred Weber, whatever, who claim to have the absolute truth. And if anybody dealing with the UFO phenomenon claims to have the absolute truth, you should not listen to them. I mean, literally, you should just, in fact, you should tell them to shut up and yeah, then hit absolutely. them with a the shovel. The people, the, Especially the shovel, that's good. Yeah, the people that I like, like I think this is why Greg and Nick and Mac Tonys, who, who didn't make it today, and I all get along so well, is none of us have the answers. It's mm -hmm. another reason why I like Nick Pope, for instance, is a guy who will say, well, here's a bunch of information, here's what I think it might be, but I can't say for sure. How can I? I don't know. And right. I'm very, very leery of people with the UFO subject to come forward and say, we know the truth. Because there might be a truth, there might be several truths, it might be any one of a number of things. And I think, David, I'd just like to add, you raised a really good point, and I, I raised it in answer to a question last year at RetroCon out in Landers or, or Joshua Tree. Somebody asked me about the Mexican UFO sightings, and they were doing it in the context of Jaime Masson, who I think is a, a Class A con artist um, and not a journalist, really. But leaving that aside, I left Jaime Masson aside and I answered, well, you raise an interesting point, though, about cases that are not centered in what I would call the Anglo-Saxon Western world, the UK, Canada, the United States, maybe Australia, New Zealand, the non-English speaking world. And they get almost no publicity. They're largely unknown. And I think that is part of our own cultural bias. We are, meaning the Anglo-Saxon English speaking Western world, the controllers of the media. China and India have more people, but we control content. The United States still largely controls content. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's part of that, if it isn't about us, then it doesn't matter kind of attitude that sometimes we have. So, oh, it's a bunch of people in Argentina or Turkey or, you know, Rwanda or wherever who saw something. Well, they're not really in the first world, so they don't really count. You're quite right when you identify the, the, the fact that there are an awful lot of cases out there, I suspect, that, that have been reported, but also that haven't been reported, that are not well known. And those are things that should be looked into as well. And it's to the detriment of the UFO research community that they don't pay more attention to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Nick, can maybe ask you to jump in there as a person who grew up in the UK, looking at the American and United Kingdom attitudes towards this field or any field. What is your feeling about this? Well, I think certainly in America and Britain, I, I think the research has broadly followed similar paths. And I think Paul's quite correct that there is this kind of idea that, you know, whether it's a UFO sighting or 
or 5,000 people get killed in an earthquake on the other side of the world. Oh, well, it's, it's a funny country over there, and yeah, they got killed, and it's a shame, but oh, what time's American Idol on? You know, it's kind of that scenario. And I think there is a situation where a lot of good cases do get missed. There's no doubt about that. Or they just don't get investigated because people take that approach. Oh, it's, you know, it's just Brazil or something like that, which is a massively wrong approach to take. But I would say that having lived in Britain and America, I think it, it's kind of interesting that how closely the research fields have followed similar paths. You know, in the 50s, a lot of interest in the contactees, which then began to wane in the 60s. The whole issue of how Roswell took off in the U.S. as the premier crashed UFO story. You know, there are five or six cases of crashed UFOs in Britain that provoke a lot of interest. The issue of trying to prize and pull files out of the governments in America, Britain, and also Canada has followed similar paths. So, so I don't see a great deal of difference. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But I do think sometimes we're all guilty and, you know, certainly in the English-speaking world, a lot of people are guilty of just focusing on their own areas because they don't see anything else as, as being important. And I think, you know, I mean, it was Jack Vallée who wrote a book all about, I, forget, I think it was called, no, I'm getting mixed up with Bob Pratt, um, UFO Danger Zone, I think, all about South American reports, which is packed with really good cases that, to be honest, have never been investigated in depth. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of those, you know, we could learn a lot from kind of expanding our horizons a little bit. Most of the UFO researchers, or at least the well-known ones, who do it on a consistent basis, come from the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking Western world, too. There are exceptions, of course. But one of the reasons why, in my film, eight of the ten cases took place in that sort of Western world is because the people that I was polling, by and large, with one or two exceptions, were Americans, British, Canadians, um, a couple of Australians. So their answers, you know, list your top ten cases. Well, okay, here they are. Um, they all seem to have happened in the United States, Canada, Australia, or the U.K. The only exception that made it onto my list besides the astronaut case from Skylab was the Tehran case from uh, 1976, the Iranian jet fighters. And, I mean, you just can't keep that case off a, a top ten list. But I, I think even with that one, I've run into people who, when you have a conversation with them, they start to question, well, you know, Iranians, pilots. I mean, it's not like they were American Air Force pilots, were they? I actually had somebody say that to me once, and uh, and I, you just look at them and go, well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be flying up against them. Uh, they were trained by Americans. They were our allies. They were top-notch pilots. And if two of them say that they saw this and it's tracked on ground radar, I mean, you know, what difference does it make? And then you say, well, the American government took them seriously, so why shouldn't you? And also the aircraft were probably built by the Americans and also they the radar were. equipment. Sure. Okay. Or phantom jets. You see? There you go. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos. And it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Paul Kimball, Nicholas Redfern, and Greg Bishop here, and we're talking, I guess, here about looking for the UFO cases that aren't getting publicity. Now, David, since you obviously experienced one of the major cases here, which, of course, is this one in Venezuela, which I think by any, by any estimate, this would be a major UFO case if it happened Absolutely. In, Mil- in Milwaukee. But because it happened in Venezuela, nobody cares about it. Now, so how do we change that, David? What do you think? Well, we give me a lot less than $3 million, and I put together a team, and go spend six months down in in South America. I think there has to be a will to do this, and the bottom line is that it has to be done with the attitude that the primary goal is not to create entertainment content, but to actually create some academically useful information. So that that requires somebody, you know, there's somewhere out there, there's an angel who's going to maybe one day step forward and make that a reality. We do have broadband access in South America, ladies and gentlemen. It's an advanced set of countries Look, there. Yeah. And in fact, right now with the telecoms going to Cuba, you'll even be able to do a show from Cuba. Well, look, bottom line is this. As I, I think I've mentioned on the show, a couple of years ago when I went down to Buenos Aires to get dental work done, I had people I know say to me, you're really going down there? Is it safe? Do they have like like current technology? It's just amazing the level of ignorance of a large number of people, even people who are reasonably intelligent about a lot of things. When it comes to understanding other cultures, uh, they're highly ignorant. And, and I would also suggest that that cultural ignorance is not going to get us very far in trying to understand an other that is culturally about as different from us as you could possibly get. So this whole idea of expanding our awareness of not only other cultures, but the process of understanding other cultures. Because, look, we on the Paracast have done one episode with David Sonnenschein about uh, this L.A. filmmaker who went down to Brazil and did a documentary about this incredibly important paranormal case. So, and, I, and I've brought this up on the show more than a couple of times, the case of Jose Zarigo and the whole Dr. Fritz phenomenon. This is something that how many American paranormal researchers have never heard of this? There's a book by an, a well-known American author, John G. Fuller, Arigo, the Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. Fantastic book that I've turned a number of people on to. This is a, not only a case that was incredibly important in South America between like 1951 and 1971, but 
this has been an ongoing episode, an ongoing event. David Sonnenschein sent me a copy of the documentary he had produced about the current guy who is supposedly the vessel of this German doctor, Dr. Fritz. And it's sad that David has never released this documentary into the mainstream. But in that documentary, you've got a guy who is an electronics engineer. He's not a doctor. There's footage of him doing brain surgery on a woman who's wide awake. Her head is open. He's in her brain. She's like alive. She's not dying. So there, hard video footage. I mean, real stuff. But for whatever reasons, uh, nobody goes on coast to coast and talks about Arigo, so it's off the radar. I, I would love to be able to be in a position to put together a team to go down to South America, and I'd specifically, I'd go to Brazil, I'd go to Venezuela, and I would go to Argentina. There is an ongoing flap of UFO and other highly anomalous activity going on in Argentina right now. It's an ongoing real-time thing. And you have people down there with very few resources that are trying to cover this, and they really can't. They don't even have, like, decent video cameras because of the economic expense. So I would immediately put a crew and go down there. And I even, you know, before I got pretty upset with Burns, I suggested to him that, hey, you're doing this UFO Hunter show? Let's put together a team and go down there. I've got real solid leads. Let's go find, I know, that at least two newspapers had front cover stories the day after my episode in July of 1974 that somewhere in a microfiche catalog somewhere in one of those two newspapers in Caracas that front page exists you know all I need to do is get down there with a few bucks in my pocket and I promise you I can find this if well, no one's destroyed it so but the problem is the ability of putting together a concerted effort that's not centered on entertainment value. I think that's the obstacle. Well, and I, I would say to you, David, look, we're having a business conversation on the Paracast. No, I'm just, I kid. <laughs> but when I say $3 million, I was talking about a series and that kind of stuff. I mean, if you just want to do a, a documentary, you can do it for a lot less. What you need is if you want a filmmaker to come down and be part of that documentary experience, I also agree you should have other people involved, you know, an, an awful lot less money and find people. And I would I'd love to do that, partly because I love to travel, but I would love to go down take a high-def camera, a small but you know good, talented team, and spend, as you say, a considerable amount of time down there just trying to drill down and get at the core of, of the mystery in a different place. And one of the thing I, things I like about Nick, and particularly some of his friends like Richard Freeman, right, Nick, and John Downs, mm. on the cryptozoological end of things, when they go looking for – I mean, and this is not UFOs, of course, but it's all part of the paranormal pie – I mean, these guys go to, um, where did they go, Nick? Guiana? Was it Guiana? Yeah, to Guiana looking for giant snakes, and Richard's right. come back from Russia looking for the Russian equivalent of Bigfoot called the Almasty. And you know, I think that's an important point that you're only really going to get the answers to some of these mysteries by going and looking for them. The Internet's a great source, but very often in ufology, it's just a tool for arguing with each other rather than actually getting out there and doing something. Right. I mean, Nick and I did a, a mini-expedition to Puerto Rico back in 2005, I think it was, Nick. It seems so yeah. long ago. And that was for a documentary on cattle mutilations I was doing for Canadian television, and I wanted to draw the link between the cattle mutilation phenomenon, which we were all pretty aware of, and I say, look, you know, there are things happening in other countries that seem somewhat similar, at least, in the Chupacabra, 
it's one of those phenomenon. So do the link. And, and so we went down and did all that. And the network told me, take it out. Nick doesn't know this. I had an edited cut of the film that had half North American and half of it was the Puerto Rican end. And they told me to take the Puerto Rican stuff out. Um, so I wound up with a film solely about cattle mutilation, and that's fine. But when we were down there, you know, we're out in the in the wilds of, of Puerto Rico, as Nick would remember, because he, he got Montezuma's revenge, and uh, never have the tuna salad. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're in the back, not woods, but jungles or whatever you want to call it, interviewing people, talking to people with a, with a local guide, which was very important, and about whatever I think chupacabras are, about these experiences that they're having, these things that they're seeing. And I have to say, of all the, the work that I've done, the Puerto Rican trip was an eye-opener for me And that you, you want to be down there, you want to be talking to people. It was a, a tremendous opportunity for, for Nick and I, and I know Nick has had other trips to Puerto Rico, to actually talk to people who've had these paranormal experiences uh, firsthand. And I think that's the thing that an, an awful lot of um, documentary makers, researchers, the people who are doing it on the internet, whatever you want, any of these people are missing. The other place where I've had that really cool experience is, is David, you had mentioned it, Rendlesham. Um, when I was doing Best Evidence, I went to Rendlesham Forest. We filmed there. Nothing paranormal. We were buzzed by black helicopters, but, um, you know, it's just a spooky place. And Nick can tell you all sorts of stories that have nothing to do with UFOs about but are paranormal that have happened in Rendlesham and in, in the forest in, the, in that area. And when you go to places like this, when you actually um, sort of experience them, you realize that that it's not as simple perhaps as nuts and bolt craft in, in the sky, that there are many different aspects to the phenomenon that there may, people sort of mock Nick sometimes when he ties Bigfoot to UFOs or whatever. Um, and I, I think that's fair game though, that all of these paranormal things may be related. And when I say people mock them, I mean UFO nuts and bolts guys. All of these paranormal things may be related. And the irony is a hundred or 200 years ago, despite the fact that we were not as technologically advanced as we are now, I think we were more open-minded to these things, and we were more open-minded to different cultures, even as we appropriated them and maybe squished them. But there were people from the colonial era who would go in and who would be very open-minded, who would, who would in, indulge in those experiences, immerse themselves in those cultures. I think those people are fewer and fewer now. And ironically, technology has made it, made it even worse. We just sort of steamroll everybody with our technological prowess. And in doing so, we lose our sense of inquisitiveness. We lose our sense that we are part of, a, of an entire world. And if, you, if there is a non-human intelligence out there, I think I've heard you talk about this before, David, I quite agree. It's not discriminating between Americans, Peruvians, Rwandans, and Australians. So whatever the non-human intelligence is to whatever we're interacting with, the fact that we might have computers and somebody in, in Burundi does not, I don't think that's going to matter to them. So we have to, we have to take, as airy-fairy as it sounds, a, a global perspective to this, and we also have to get out there in the field as much as possible. We had a show, Nicholas, with Peter Robbins, which will air before your episode, the one yeah. that we're doing now. And... When you address paranormal events at Rendlesham Forest, can you maybe cover a couple of things? Yeah, I mean, Rendlesham Forest, which is on the east coast of England, the whole area is sort of steeped in weird tales. Rendlesham and the surrounding villages, for example, a hundred years ago were the sites of a wave of so-called Black Panther sightings, uh, which is like a, a generic term for mysterious big cats that have been seen all across the British Isles for years. And there have also been ghostly black dog reports in the forest, very similar to the legends that spawned the Conan Doyle 
original novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles. The forest itself is also the rumoured haunt of a creature that's become known as the Shug Monkey, uh, which is like a, a Bigfoot-type creature. And on top of that, there have been a lot of military experiments undertaken in the vicinity of Rendlesham Forest and the surrounding areas, one being Orford Ness, where a lot of the early British military radar experimentation was undertaken prior to and during the Second World War. And there's a lot of military bases. So you have this whole area which is steeped in weirdness, steeped in classified military experimentation, and then suddenly at the forefront you have this UFO event. And I think through no fault of their own, everybody who is either in the ufological field or the Fortean field when you think of Rendlesham Forest, you think of the December 1980 events, not realizing that that's actually, yes, probably the most significant event that's occurred in the vicinity. But if you look into it, it's just one of many odd reports of a whole range of high strangeness that have occurred in that in that particular area. Greg, well, course, I think, would yeah. you want to chime in here with a few comments? Who, me? Yes, you. Okay, yeah, I haven't spoken for a while. All this whole time I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I have something to say about that. I have something to say about that. Take it back, uh, maybe one subject about the globalization and the covering different countries and, and even further back about media coverage. All of this ties together. I think that you have to get people interested in these cases from other countries to show that it's a worldwide phenomena and that there's so many other aspects to it. I mean, without overwhelming, most importantly, I guess, the people who are going to report on it. But the thing is, I, the, Dean Radin, who's a parapsychological researcher, told me this uh, when I interviewed him. He said, um, you know, what you have to do is get the media people and the academic people and the people who are in, who are in charge of putting out that information you have to get somebody in that realm excited about it to get the coverage. And, you know, I don't exactly know how to go about doing this. I mean, the, the, the ABC special was, was a step in that direction. Look at the impact it had, almost nothing. But to keep hammering away at the people who are basically the gatekeepers of, of what is discussed and what, what information is deemed important, those are the people you have to impress because then there'll be a trickle down. The Peter Jennings special, very quickly, I just want to say, that could have been a landmark watershed moment for UFO research, and ufology botched it, and I've written about it, because all they focused on was the abduction in Roswell stuff in the back right. end, and they missed the front hour, where there were great cases and great witnesses, and the network took it seriously, and they got, the UFO guys, the alien guys, get so upset, because at the end of it, you know, it was Roswell, and they debunked that, and they had problems with the abduction phenomenon. Well, so what? The glass is half full, not empty. And then they totally ignore the fact that you get a guy like Michio Kaku at the end, who is telling people as the final note of the film, hey, we should take this seriously. We might learn something from it. Instead of using it as a stepping stone to engage the broader public in the general conversation, the UFO community just pooed all over it, I remember. And that is that is the problem we're dealing with as much as the mass media, is the self-inflicted wounds that ufology sort of inflicts on. Yeah, exactly. Themselves. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to make that point. And before yeah. Greg goes back, we'll tell everybody. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop, Paul Kimball, doing a special UFO roundtable. Greg, continue, please. Yeah, well, the UFO uh, community, yeah, is its own worst enemy. I pointed that out, actually, in um, Project Beta, and I think that's what upset a lot of people that reviewed the book. Also, uh, the ABC people, they called me, UFO Hunters has called me multiple times, and um, I don't know if it's what it is. I don't have the right voice, or I don't look good, or maybe more importantly, I don't have a simple answer or something that can be pinned on me by saying this is what this person believed. You can't get a Reader's Digest version or you don't wear sunglasses or a cap. Well, I, I think the main reason is because, like I said, it's not, you know, Nick has appeared on some things, but not as many as he should. Other people, have, you know, Brad Sparks has never appeared on anything, except in Paul's documentary. Nick Pope, I'm glad he's getting exposure, but it's mostly, mostly in the U.K., but it's it's mainly because they want to be able to stick somebody in a box and say this people believes there's aliens coming from other planets. And it's you know they'll ask me that question and I say well that's one idea. There's so many others. And then you know the the, the switch turns off and they don't want to hear anymore. The brain I, turns I, off. They want the Reader's Digest version, huh? Yeah, exactly. And it's you know it's hard to give a Reader's Digest version except to just first say there's many things that are going on all over the world and uh, perceived in many different ways by different people. There's definitely something there, but to pin it down to aliens coming from other planets, I think is really uh, self-defeating, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. If people want information on um, what's going on in other countries, there's so many places to look, especially, as David pointed out, with the Internet. But you can't tell people how to think about things or well, where to look. I mean, I wish you could, but you know, I don't have the answer, and nobody I know has the answer, so it's... Hard to tell people where to go. There's one. There's one site that uh, Albert Rosales does, which is called Humanoid Sighting Reports. Yeah, there's a lot of wonky, weird crap on it, but there's reports from all over the world of people seeing strange things around their houses and the skies. Um, you know, everything from somebody's you know seeing little figures in their backyard to a recent one from Saudi Arabia with a, a mass sighting in in in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. And, you know, we'll never hear about that. Just to get all this information together in one place, like a worldwide sighting report thing would be good. Another, a really good person to have on, if you haven't yet, for that would be Scott Corrales. And I think he's oh, yeah. very yes. much overlooked by a lot of people because he's dealing with things that are going on in Spain and Latin American countries, which is another thing. You know, why hasn't somebody in the incredibly huge, you know, uh, 
Spanish-speaking media market in the United States, why haven't they started some kind of program focusing on, on these other countries? Maybe they oh. haven't. I just haven't seen it yet. The, the, but the um, that's there. a large part of the population, at least in the United States. Scott Corrales is a good friend of the show. We've had him on multiple times. Oh, okay. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you know, part of that is because I did grow up in South America, and I speak fluent Spanish, so... That was part of how that connection ended up working. The other oh. reason, of course, by the way, is David can talk to him in Spanish and say things about me that I can't understand. <laughs> but but meanwhile, the problem is, of course, that you've got Jaime Mossan, and he has been sort of put forward as the most public face of the Latin... He himself forward. Well, absolutely. And, and he has momentum with that. And so that's a problem. I mean, one of the things that we have to realize here... I want to you know, sort of emphasize this. Pornographer. That, I'm sorry? I said he's a pornographer. He shows UFO porno. No, pretty much, except it's not even that sexy, baby. <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, no, well, but, but I see, part of, part of the issue here is that for most people, this is nothing more than entertainment. Most people look at this topic as a form of escapist media. They're not interested in understanding it. They'd rather just have it be a mystery. In well, that, until something is very important to people on a daily basis in their daily lives and affects right. them directly, it's not that important. I mean, that's right. a big hurdle to get over. Exactly. I don't know if it's possible to get over that hurdle. I don't know if that, that might be a pipe dream. And, I mean, part of what we try to do on the Paracast is to change the tone of the conversation. But the problem with that is that the minute you get critical, I mean, we've had people come on the show, we tear them to pieces, and then we get attacked by people who are saying, you're not having an open mind about this. It's like, well, no, we're, we're trying to deploy some logic here, a little bit of rationality, just some a little tiny bit of critical thinking. But for most people, a little tiny bit of critical thinking is more than they want to indulge in. That's a huge problem. I don't know if that's a surmountable well, People aren't problem. taught, that, at least in this country, they're not, they're not, in general, taught to come to their own conclusions on things. There's a, you know, a, a token... Uh, effort made in that in in that direction in a lot of uh, elementary and uh, middle and senior high schools, but I don't think as a rule people are taught to make a decision for themselves, and a lot of people are scared to make a decision for themselves because that involves thinking, it involves going out and looking for information on your own, and it involves weighing the information and then expressing an opinion that people might not agree with. I'm sorry, but not everybody's going to agree with you, and you have to face up to that. And it'd right. be nice if, as a culture, as a, as a country, this country anyway, that we could raise people to think that, yes, I can express my opinion and be prepared to change it. It's, it's a mark of intelligence and bravery to change your mind when you're confronted with information that does not agree with what your opinion is. You expand that to what happened on his overseas trip, President Obama is trying to say, I am here to listen. And then the conservative media says, he's not arrogant enough. He's putting down America. How can you Cares listen about to anybody else? The conservative media have supported for years blatant war criminals. Again, this is like you have to look at what the mission of the media has been. Basically, the media, and, and look, at this part, most of the educational system in this country is not about creating creative problem solvers. It's about creating complacent consumers and good little soldiers. That's the deal. And if you understand that, then you start to realize why our culture is where it's at, where it's pretty clear that consumer society has not worked. 
it, it isn't working out. And what's what's happening around us now is that a lot of it seems to be collapsing because it was never tenable to begin with. And I would say, David, and I don't want to get into a long conversation. Yes, the conservative, and I don't mean sort of Republican media, but just the conservative, you know, true small C, we're conservative, we don't want people thinking media. Um, that's what they do. I, I would point to the proliferation of crap on, on the Internet, which I sort of I'll call media, and the more liberal media, which is to say think of everything and don't have any critical faculties that weed it out are just as bad in their own way. Greg used to call his, I think he still has a website, um, used to call the excluded middle. And I think that's where all of us, the five of us here, and if Mac was here, he'd find himself there too, probably fall, which is that those critical thinkers who sit in the middle and admit they don't have all the answers, or in some cases they don't have any of the answers, but what drives them forward is they see questions that need to be asked that they want to ask. And the mistake I made for a couple of years in the UFO thing, and the realization I came to is, I was trying to convince people either that I was right or they were wrong or they should look at things differently. And it's great to expose hoaxers and all that sort of stuff, but I've come, and I think it comes from knowing Greg and Nick and Mac and their way of thinking, it's, it's more more now for me about can I convince myself of something? If I happen to convince somebody else, that's great. If I, I like sharing information, I like discovering information, it's what I do. But at the end, I think for all of us, it's, it's really a personal interest and it's a personal journey. And I, I don't think you know, we're ever going to change the big picture. All I think you can do is, is change your own way of looking at things. And if in doing that, and you guys do it through the Paracast, if you make an influence on some small or mid-sized group of people or whatever, then you've made an incremental step forward um, for the way that we all think about things like this. But that's about it. That's the best you can hope for. And I think that's probably good enough. I, unlike some people who want to solve the UFO mystery, Steve Bassett or whatever, um, in their own way, I, I don't have grandiose aspirations to bring the cosmic Watergate to an end or whatever. I, I just have aspirations to satisfy my own intellectual curiosity. And I think that's probably the best way of looking at it. But you're assuming that Bassett's interested in actually discovering truth here, and I don't believe that's the case at all. No, neither do I. He's all about making money. But, you know, he's just the first No, person. no. Actually, I think you're wrong about that. I think he's all about being a center of attention. I think this for him is about somehow being an important person in a life where he's been invisible. I think there's an element of both of those there. I think you have to look at it also as a personal journey. And if somebody is affected by what you do or you learn something from another person, that's enough. Just think if, you know, thousands and thousands of people took that view of it. I, I think that the UFO community, the paranormal community, and even the larger community would be much the better for it if you look at it as a learning experience rather than I'm going to get to the answer and then I'm going to announce it to everybody. And then make a best-selling book and a lecture tour. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. 
It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official PowerCast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking, and this is now a lecture tour, with Paul Kimball, Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop. For a number of years now, a little over 20 years, I've been a professional educator as part of my life. And uh, I've taught at a number of highly accredited schools. And one of the things that I really focus on is teaching my students creative problem-solving skills. All right. I am not interested in showing them rote memorization techniques regarding advanced procedures with things like imaging software, animation software. I try to foster in them a sense of critical thinking, creative problem solving. That's been my entire philosophical approach towards education. And so in this realm, I think part of what we try to do here in the Paracast is, is sort of the same kind of a thing. We're not offering people answers. I, I would never say I have the answers to any of this. The more time I spend involved in looking at this, the more questions I have. At the same time, it's, I think it's, it is an important mission to, to try to cut some of the noise away. And so, uh, like I said on this show before, I'm not interested in making any friends in this realm. I'm really not. Uh, in fact, friendships I've made have been short-lived and very disappointing. So uh, the bottom line is that for, for me, personally, my whole attitude about doing this, I mean, I'm, I'm involved with the Paracast because I have a lifetime of paranormal experiences that I don't have answers to and that have made me question a lot of things. You know, I come to this trying to have conversations with people like yourselves. I think this is one of the better shows we've done, in fact, um, because none of us pretend to have any answers about this. Really, truly. I mean, we're, we're trying to just figure out what are the intelligent questions to ask, which is enough of a task in and of itself. Um, but at the same time, you know, recognizing that what you said before, Paul, you know, it, it's true. You can't change the way most people think. But at the same time, sometimes I think you have to try. Yeah, I agree. I just... It I, I think it comes from just doing what you would do naturally. So we're out there doing it, and hopefully, I guess, as a as a supplementary impact, that will change the way people think. If it doesn't, I'm not going to lose any sleep about it, though, um, because I'll still be changing the way I think. And at the end of the day, the only thing I can truly control is the way I think. And um, everything else is, frankly, just a bonus. So that's that's sort of the, the revelation that I've had, um, courtesy of Nick and Greg <laughs> and Zach over the last few years. Yeah, you do what you're going to do, and the people who are attracted to your way of thinking and who may either learn something from you and or teach you something uh, and in the process bring you both you know, to a greater understanding of either yourselves or the phenomenon or how we interact with the world or with this unknown realm, I think that's the gold. If you get an, if you get an answer, so-called, to anything, that's just icing on the cake. And if you have friends, and I put that in quotation marks, um, David, like Nick and Greg and Mac and I are all friends, and we've all had disagreements. I publicly rebuked Nick for his Body Snatchers book and pointed out what I consider to be serious flaws. Greg and I have had um, you know, disagreements about the contactee movement, for instance. 
and I know Mac and I have disagreed about stuff. And then we all sit down and have a drink. I mean, you know, if you're going to disagree with somebody about something like this, and then they're they're not going to be your friend anymore, they were never your friend in the first place. Yep. So what you do is seek out people of like mind, and you know, that, I think that's probably a pretty small group usually. And those are the people you you get gravit you gravitate towards. I'm just lucky I found these three guys, and that you guys are out there, and there are some others. And that's, to me, the ufological community. And the rest of them, I say, you know, screw you. I couldn't care less whether you like me or not. Hey, we don't have a lot of time. Maybe we can throw in a few comments, and I'll call you each in turn, but you can all chime in. doesn't matter. Abductions, the last entry that we really haven't covered much of. Nicholas. Well, I think there's a genuine abduction phenomenon. Now, what, I, what I'm interested in is the fact that a lot of the abductions that have been reported, although at first glance they seem to be, you know, physical, flesh and blood abductions of people aboard craft, etc. There seems to be an air of almost like altered states to a lot of them. And I think this is something that isn't just with respect to abductions, but it's it's been found in a lot of contactee cases and a lot of religious experiences over the centuries that people seem to have an interaction with an intelligence that manifest that comes into their lives and that radically changes their outlook on life whether you know it's like a religious conversion or it's a contactee experience or an abduction experience and whether the person goes on the lecture circuit or writes books and you know their life is literally transformed so i'm not con i actually don't accept the general scenario of little gray guys coming to the earth stealing our sperm eggs and dna because their society is dying I think it's far more subtle, esoteric, and surreal than that. And I think that is just a modern-day motif of something that's been with us for a long time. And I think the goal of it is to kind of instill change and transformation in the people who are exposed to it. It's just the way that it's done right now is through abductions. That's an acceptable way of, of transforming the person's mindset, if you like. Greg? Well, of course, you asked Nick first, and he said exactly what I wanted to say. Okay, well, it's been nice I having would, you on the show. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, uh, yeah, I would add to that. And somebody asked me this um, a few days ago last week. They said, "What do you think this other, this other, this non-human thing is trying to do to us?" And I said, "I have two minds of that. One, you know, maybe there is another, just like Nick said, that is trying to transform people." Maybe as Whitley Strieber kind of looks at it, one person at a time. But then on the other hand, I'm saying we don't know where all this experience is coming from. Maybe a lot of it is coming from us. And it's uh, some kind of wake-up call of the species asking, you know, where we're trying to deal with it ourselves. And one of the tools is interaction with something that appears to be not us. And, and you know, we're looking at our reflection and, and trying to change it ourselves in some strange way. And, uh, yeah, it has been going on for centuries. And like Nick and probably Paul's going to say, I think that by and large, the UFO researchers that you hear about that have written books and all this, they've got an agenda and um, they don't think they do but they've got an agenda and they've shaped the abduction experience in the way that we see it today that it's presented in the popular media and I don't think the 
that really has anything to do with what it really is, where it's coming from, and how it's affecting us. And I could bring up, and Nick has too before, the work of Dr. Rick Strassman, DMT, the spirit molecule, where people were injected with a psychoactive chemical, which a lot of people have problems with, but screw them, not expecting this at all, something like 30 40% of the people, while they were in this altered state, had something that cannot be distinguished really from a lot of abduction reports and they swore they had not been abducted before or really read the literature or anything like that. It's really important to notice things like that in regards to the so-called abduction experience and where it might be coming from. I'd really encourage people to read that book. Paul? Two things. One, I would agree with Greg on the book. Absolutely, people should search that out. And I know when we did our episode a couple weeks ago, which airs or has already aired, Holly and I, a bit jokingly, talked about going down to Peru and taking a shamanistic trip up the Amazon and doing all this. We, jo- you know, we were joking a bit. We don't joke amongst ourselves that something both of us want to experience. And I think our own experiences in ghost investigation have just have convinced us even more that that's, you know, we want to do more of those things. The only other thing that I'd say is in terms of abduction researchers, I would particularly single out the research community, again, with quotation marks. I think they do far more harm than good. I think whatever the truth is about the abduction phenomenon or enigma, I think most cases are explainable. Again, like UFOs, I think there are some that are not that we may be dealing with a non, an interaction with a non-human intelligence. The likes of Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs have probably irrevocably, like Roswell, skewered it with this whole alien meme that getting at the actual truth of what's going on may well be impossible or certainly might have to wait until a, a new generation comes forward. And the only abduction researcher that I actually had any respect for, and I say had because he's passed away, obviously, it was John Mack, because he was the one who seemed to keep an open mind about the fact that these people might be experiencing something and it might not necessarily be aliens from Zeta Reticuli. And that was refreshing, and um, he paid for it, not only within the academic community, but even within the so-called UFO research community. He came in for far more criticism, ironically, than those other people did, and I think that was because he didn't reinforce the perceptions that many in the UFO community have, that it must be aliens from Zeta Reticuli, and there's no other answer. Unless the aliens from Zeta Reticuli land and tell us something else. True. And then they're probably lying anyway. So How can you believe the aliens from Zeta Reticuli? Never trust an alien from Zeta Reticuli. <laughs> if they're from Rise of the Pleasure Planet, that's a different story. <laughs> I remember seeing John Mack sitting down. I was with Pamela Stonebrook, the uh, reptilian sex or whatever woman, and she knew Mack. We were at a MUFON meeting. Stephen Greer got up and started talking, and Mack sat there for a while, and then he looked. He rolled his eyes, and he said, I'm going to be up in my room, and he left. He said, nice meeting you, and he left. <laughs> It's one of my favorite memories from the my UFO career, or whatever, is sitting with David Biedney at the X conference in 2007, listening to Stephen Greer and turning to David and saying, he's the Benny Hinn of ufology. And, you know, <laughs> I can live for 100 years, David, and you and I could fight about a 1,000 things, and we will always share that moment of having been there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Stephen Greer. <laughs> oh, Greer, yeah. yeah. It's sad. I, I find all this, uh, on a certain level, this is all very interesting, This this whole field. On another level, it's just a sad, sad statement about the current state of human affairs in many ways. It's very frustrating. And as far as the abduction phenomenon, I don't know what I think about this. 
I really don't know. And that's all I'll say. Well, you know what? I might as well give an opinion because nobody asked. And I'm controlling the microphones here. And mm -hmm. it's the only reason that gives me the authority to give an opinion, which is probably I'm not dissimilar in my opinions to Nick, that these people might be undergoing some kind of experience of some sort, spiritual, collective, unconscious, whatever. And maybe the planet Earth is sending us a message. Who knows? But I don't think it's Zeta Reticuli. And certainly when you get messages where everybody says, we've got to get rid of nuclear weapons, well, maybe we all believe that. And so we send little space people out to the minds of people who are supposedly sensitive to that. And, of course, the space people or whatever we want to imagine them to be come to us and say, get rid of nuclear weapons. I guess where I wonder about is the cases that people actually saw something in the sky or supposedly saw something in the sky and then they have the missing time episode or they remember the alleged abduction consciously as opposed to a subconscious memory or something brought about by hypnotic regression i worry about that what about you david well i have terrible problems with the whole issue of hypnotic regression and implanted memories just have a terrible problem with all of that at the same time, I keep coming back to this idea in my head that we don't have the ability to understand this with the limitations of our senses, of the physiology of our brains, of our cultural conditioning, of our current state of evolution. I really, truly, this is just a cynic in me, I just don't think... If the actual reality of this were in front of us, we'd even have the ability of understanding it. I really don't think we would. And I'm, I'm just trying to be humble about this. I just, I, just, I really, I keep coming back to that. This idea that you, you, we're seeing the visible edge of something that it's just, it's kind of that, that idea of flatland, that you see the thing changing in front of you and really you have the three-dimensional object passing through the two-dimensional frame. And from your point of view, it looks like something that's A, B, and C and really, the real answer is that you can't even use a, any kind of a lettering or numerical system to represent it. That it's, it's beyond our ability to imagine. And, and humans think that they can imagine anything. And, and I try to be a little more humble about this and realize that, again, just the current state of our evolution, we talk about ourselves as a technological society. And, you know, we think that computers are some grand statement of how far we've come. And I look at computer technology and I think it's amazing that half the stuff even works most of the time. Really. We only have a few moments left. Let's find out more about the things that our guests do or are doing. Greg Bishop, where do we get a hold of you if we want to find out more of the things that you're working on? Well, probably the best place to look is UFO Mystic, the uh, blog that Nick and I do. Uh, there's almost daily posts there. Uh, my magazine, which Paul mentioned, thank you, is, was called The Excluded Middle. If you go to excludedmiddle.com, it's held in suspended animation there. And, of course, there's three books. One is a collection of Excluded Middle called Wake Up Down There. Um, that's on Amazon. The second book is Project Beta about the uh, disinformation campaign against a New Mexico scientist took place in the late 70s, early 80s. The book I've written most recently is called 
called Weird California. It's just basically a tour guide to strange places in in California. Nick? Well, people can contact me at my website, nickredfern.com, or as Greg said at the blog we do together, ufomystic.com. And uh, my most recent book, which was called There's Something in the Woods, which came out uh, late last year, which is kind of like a road trip into the paranormal and everything cryptozoological. Me uh, kind of hitting the road in a bit of a bizarre gonzo style chasing weird creatures before we go out gonzo style paul kimball where do we get um, hold of you or check what you're doing the paracast discussion forums i i seem to frequent there or click on my name on the paracast website and it'll take you to my site um i'll use my remaining 20 seconds to say everybody if there's two books you're going to buy from the people that are talking to you right now buy project beta which is one of the most criminally overlooked books by the ufo research community that greg wrote the must read and for just fun and also some interesting stuff, honestly, buy, buy Nick's book, Three Men Seeking Monsters, yeah, which, is, yeah. which is a wonderful book about him and Richard Freeman and John Downs, you know, trudging about the U.K. for a month in a camper van looking for the Shug Monkey or whatever. These are the guys. That's why I like them. I just make films. These are the guys that I, it really is. I, I enjoy so much talking to these guys and you guys. Search out their work. Search out Mac Tony's work. That's the kind of stuff you should be reading and leave the stuff from the people we've mentioned, like Stephen Greer, you know, forget it. Search these guys out and find their work. That's what I would say. I just want to say, Paul, yep. thank you for coming up with the idea of this panel and helping put it together. Uh, this is because uh, we're doing this because of you, and you're pushing this, so thank you. No, thanks, guys. It's great. It's always great talking to you and Gene. It's fantastic. You guys have a great show. Kudos to you. Thank you. Nicholas Redfern, thanks for coming back on the PowerCast. Well, thanks, guys. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. Greg Bishop, we welcome you as a new friend, and you've also been roaming around our forums. Yeah, that's the other thing I should have mentioned. I'm on the forums there, and uh, thanks, Paul, so much for uh, suggesting it's on here. I'd love to come on at another point and listen to more of your shows, and yes, I will be on the forums and checking to see what people wrote. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's always great to discover a new uh, group of like-minded people who are trying to really look for something instead of give an answer. New life form. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.